Let me ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15. This morning at our 8.15 service, uh, we literally worshipped with people on the other side of the globe. We were Skyping to a group of uh, believers in China that had gathered in, in an apartment to, uh, to join us for worship. So uh, it was a great privilege. And then uh, earlier this morning, I heard from friends in Ukraine. And uh, so certainly uh, believers are, are celebrating uh, the resurrection today and throughout the world. Before I read the scripture, I want to ask you a question. What is the gospel? If you're asked that question, what is the gospel? If the gospel and our belief in the truths of the gospel indeed has power over this life and over our eternal destiny, whether it's heaven or hell, is it not incumbent upon us to be able to answer that question, what is the gospel? And then beyond that, what ought our response to be? Here in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, I think that this may be uh, the single passage that answers that question the best. Now, you know, the gospel is everywhere from the beginning of the Bible to the end, but in terms of one passage. So I want you to listen carefully because I, I, I think there's a sense that Paul is answering that question that I've just asked. It says this, and let's remember this is God's Word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I'm the least of the apostles. Unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is 
with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this time of worship. And as we continue to worship you, it's, it's our time not to speak but to listen to what you have said to us in your revealed word. Carefully, miraculously preserved for us. And so let us listen to your authority and we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So in, in the core form, the gospel is the good news, the, the good word, literally. That's what the word means. This passage that, uh, that we just read, uh, many people look at that like, uh, like what we said earlier, the Apostles' Creed. They, they, some have said that this is, this is virtually an early creedal statement. But what we see in this passage is the truths laid out, and then it continues on with reasons that we can believe these truths to be true. And so we need to take a look at at this today. Vince Lombardi, who is one of the greatest football coaches ever of the Green Bay Packers, there there may be a few of you that are old enough to remember him out there, but let me tell you about him anyway. He uh, He is the one that... The trophy for the Super Bowl is named after the Lombardi trophy that, you know, every team wants to win. He won championships. He was the champion of the world several times. His team was always a powerhouse. And as he would would coach his team, one of the amazing things about it is that uh, they had certain plays that they would run and everyone in the stadium knew they were going to run it at certain times, and they would run it anyway because they did it with such precision that they could just continue to roll down the field. Now, one of the things that uh, he famously would do is at the very, fir- the very first meeting, preseason meeting, he would have with his team, he would call them all into a room. Now, here you have... Uh, a, a room full of men, uh, a lot of them been professionals for a long time. All of them had played football all of their life. And he would walk to the front of the room and the young rookies would be trembling. You know, this is Vince Lombardi. And he would pick up a football and he'd say, Gentlemen, this is a football. One of his old pros one time after he'd heard that a few times he said coach you're going too fast so but he would say 
gentlemen, this is a football. And then he would take them out onto the field, and he would walk them over and show them the sidelines, and he would show them the goal line and, and the goal post, the yard markers. He would talk about football conceptually. And then he would proceed in that preseason to teach them to block and to tackle and to run and to catch and to throw. He was so convinced that it's about the basics and getting back to those that he did it every single year as long as he was a coach. Well, I think in this passage, we virtually have Paul's version of Vince Lombardi's speech. In essence, he is saying, folks, this is the gospel. And then he takes them back to the most basic, the most fundamental truths in the gospel. Oh, it's theologically deep, but it's also the very foundation of what the gospel really is. So let's take a look at this. He says in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance. And he's talking about the gospel there. And he starts then with, with his death, the death of Jesus. Verse 3, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, there's many things in this verse. We're going to look at, at three of them. Just break it down very simply. You could break it down. The first thing is Christ died. Now, that, of course, is presuming his life, the nature of his life, and, and the, the question is not ultimately whether he died, but whether he died for this purpose. But we have to start with the death itself. You might say, well, who would ever question that? Well, let me tell you who would question that. Those that don't want to cope with the next thing, which is the resurrection. There are those that uh, a long time ago, and it keeps popping up in various versions, who came up with what they, they called the swoon theory. Now, you, you might have seen some version of that. You watch the History Channel this time of year, you know, one of the In Search of the Real Jesus or something. You're going to hear about some theory like that. And, and it, it generally goes uh, something like this. Basically, they would say that, okay, Jesus hung on the cross, but then he, he passed out, and the soldiers, in a hurry to get him off of the cross, they took him down too soon, and he wasn't really dead. But, you know, back then they didn't have stethoscopes, and they couldn't hear or see his heart beating or anything, so... So they, it's understandable that they might have thought that he was dead. And then he was put in the tomb, and because of the coolness of the tomb after they sealed it up, he began to revive. 
and then eventually was able to get out of the tomb and he walked around and some people saw him. So they're saying basically he swooned on the cross, but then he was revived. What they're saying is he never really died. Now I'm sure your brains are going and you can think of some of the problems with that theory. Not the least of which is that uh, the Romans were experts at death. They might not have had the medical technology that we have, but they had crucified thousands upon thousands of people. They knew what death looked like and what it didn't look like. And we don't have any record of anyone ever being taken off of a cross and being revived at some point. Not to mention that if that were to happen, that would have been a death penalty for those death squads. But suppose that did happen, and he got out. Think about what kind of shape he would have been in. Suppose they did think he was dead, put him in the tomb, he revived, he somehow was able to move the stone beyond the fact that he had been tortured and beaten and whipped and lost blood and was dehydrated and had nails through his hands and his feet, how likely is it that three days later he would be walking around just like anyone else and making appearances to people here and there and and with great distances and doing that for 40 days and then suddenly stopping? It doesn't make sense. The reason he died is in this verse. Christ died for our sins. It wasn't martyrdom. It was because of his perfection that he didn't deserve to die, that he went to the cross. And Paul makes it clear. This is the gospel that he died for our sins. And then it says, in accordance with the Scriptures. His death was prophesied throughout the Old Testament. You go back to Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, other Messianic Psalms, other places in, uh, in the prophets. And so, when Paul would have said this, verses and passages would have come to their mind. yes. That's what the Messiah was to do. So he begins with his death, and then he talks about his burial. Verse 4, after it says that uh, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now the Scripture takes care to talk about the burial of of Jesus as well. We see that in the Apostles' Creed. That there's an emphasis that he he really, really died. Last year when we went to Israel, we went to a place that they call the Garden Tomb. That might have been my favorite place of all the the places we we visited. A, A beautiful and beautifully kept garden. 
They think it might have been actually his tomb. You can't know for sure. I had the privilege of serving communion right there in the side of the tomb to the group that we were with. But the other thing we did is that we walked down to the tomb and we walked in and looked around and we walked out. Now, if he wasn't actually buried in that tomb, it would have been one similar to that. Let me ask you this question, just from a common sense perspective. If you were in charge and you were concerned about this problem that we have, what would be some of the precautions that you would take to make sure that there weren't further problems now that he had been crucified and died? Maybe see that the body is placed in an easy-to-find location. You know, some have actually used that as a theory too and said that the women went to the wrong tomb because they were so upset and and they just found an empty tomb and they thought he had risen and so on. Well, the problem with that is, of course, then all the other people would have had to go to the wrong tomb. And, and of course, the, the government of the day could have simply said, that's the wrong tomb. Here he is over here and taken his body out and paraded it around. No such thing took place. But further, you would probably want to guard the body and, and then if there was a question about it, produce the body. Here's what we know. Not a, not a lot is known about the actual location, but we do know what went on outside the tomb. We read in, for instance, Matthew 27, where the chief priests and Pharisees went to Pilate to appeal to him to get a guard uh, on the tomb because they were, uh, you know, there was a rumor that he would rise on the third day. They weren't worried about him uh, rising from the dead. They were afraid that the disciples would come steal him and then say he had risen. So here's what the Scripture says, Matthew 27, 62. The next day, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered before Pilate. And he said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he's risen from the dead. That last fraud would be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. Now, they officially did it. They sealed it. That would have been some kind of a cord or something where if it was moved, they would have easily been able to see that it had been tampered with. And to do that would have been to break the law and you'd been, would have been in big trouble. A guard, a typical uh, guard would have been sometimes four, four guards, four people would have been a guard that they have, would put at some place like this. I have to think as I was preparing this what those guards must have thought. It's like, you're assigning me what? I'm guarding the tomb of a dead man because you're afraid of trouble. 
Didn't you see all of his followers? They ran away. They denied him. And yet, here these guys are as the guard. And then what happened? Well, of course, he walked out of the tomb. And then we read in Matthew 28, the next chapter. While they were going, okay, the guards are going, behold, some of the guard went into the city. Now, I'm supposing these are the guys that drew the short straw. (laughs) You go tell them what happened. Because they were expecting punishment. They they had uh, blown it. They'd messed up. They didn't do their job. So some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, and, and they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers. Don't you know they were surprised? They thought they were going to be, uh, be uh, maybe imprisoned or, or maybe executed. They get a tip. They make money off of this, more, more than their daily wage. And they said this to them. Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story's been spread among the Jews to this day. Now I hope you caught what the story was. Because it's not even a good story. It's not even a good lie that they, they made up. Look at, look at what they were told to say. His disciples came by night, stole him away while we were asleep. First of all, if they admitted that they were asleep, they wouldn't be allowed to be soldiers anymore. They'd be executed for that. You're asleep on... Your job. That was abandoning their post. And it doesn't say how many guards there were, but who's going to believe that all four of them fell asleep at the same time and the disciples were quiet enough to, you know, get him out of there and all that? Ridiculous story. And then the other part of it is, notice what it says. His disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. If they were asleep, how did they know who stole them? It doesn't make sense. But apparently it was good enough. It was good enough for them. And they spread it around. And that continued to be the story. So what that tells me is this. Some people do anything to deny the resurrection. It doesn't have to make sense. The story's against the resurrection. Some will do anything to suppress the truth and will believe anything other than this truth, that God worked in that tomb. So then it goes on and talks about the resurrection in terms of the the basics of the gospel. Verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that, of course, is the key. If we only believe that Jesus died, then, then Christianity is not set apart 
from other world religions. You know, when we went to Israel, we didn't go to pay respects to a fallen leader. When we went to the garden tomb, we didn't go to a sealed up tomb where there were remains inside. Other world religions, that's all you can do. Go pay your respects. We did not expect to see a body in a tomb. That's what makes Christianity different. Now, Paul doesn't just say, so believe it. He then lays down some proofs. Now, he's going to give two kinds of proofs. One kind of proof that he gives, he could only be given in this generation, and that's the appearances and the opportunity to speak to those who had seen him. And then the other kind of proof is of his transformed life. And that we see in every generation. Take a look at at what it says in terms of the appearances. Verse 5, he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. And by the way, as I read these, I want you to notice how different these appearances are in terms of number of people, the setting, the time. You can go back and figure out the time of day and all that. Uh, and, and, and so on, the location. They're all different. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So here's what he's doing here. And that's why I say it can only be done in this generation back when he said this. He's saying, I'm going to give you the names of people. Go talk to them. They saw him. You don't have to just take my word for it. They were there. They saw him. You add to those appearances... Mary in the garden, the women by the wayside, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Thomas, the seven disciples on seashore. And some are going to say, oh, those are all hallucinations. Again, there's a problem with that theory. The fact that he appeared to all sorts of people in all sorts of different places and circumstances and times, and then it suddenly stopped. It wasn't as though... The hallucinations kept going throughout history. Typically in hallucinations, you are expecting to see something. You have someone who died at a certain time uh, of, of day and a certain day of the year, and you, you see them every year. There's an expectation. But in this case... The first ones that went to the tomb were going to prepare, finish preparing the body for eternal burial. They were not expecting to see Jesus or an empty tomb. Others were frightened. Others thought he was a ghost. If you're going to fake a resurrection, you don't tell a story and then say, 
go talk to everybody else and see if they tell you the same story. The appearances are a proof of the resurrection. But then there's the other, and that is the transformation. Verse 9, the Apostle Paul said this, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Remember also that, that when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, Jesus said, why do you persecute me? So in persecuting his church, he was persecuting Jesus. Now there's the transformation that we're talking about. You have the, a band of disillusioned uh, men that ran away, that denied, that doubted, that somehow were so transformed that they changed the whole world and the course of history by what they had seen. That's a transformation. You have Peter the denier becoming Peter the professor. Thomas the doubter becoming Thomas who professes my Lord and my God. And you have Saul, the persecutor of Christ, becoming one, and I don't know if there was anyone that has ever loved Jesus more than him. Now, for the Apostle Paul, it was a personal encounter with Jesus. We read about it, we've studied about it in Acts chapter 9, where Paul's on the road to Damascus. He's going not to meet Jesus, he's going to persecute the church. And then he meets Jesus. And so some of you might say, well, that's great for Paul. But what about me? I'm sitting here in Columbia, South Carolina. What about me? Well, you are being confronted by the same one that confronted Paul on the road to Damascus. You're being confronted by his word. And so you've got to make a decision. Can I remain on this resurrection fence? And the answer is you cannot. I can't make you believe it. But you can't act any longer as if it doesn't matter. You believe it or deny it. But you can't stay on the fence about it because he has confronted you. So what do we do if, if this does make sense? Well, in verses 3 and 11, he uses the word believe. We need to be clear on what it is to believe. You see, I'm, I may say, I believe that Jesus did offer forgiveness. I believe that he died on the cross. You might even say, I believe that he was resurrected. And that's where belief starts, but that cannot be where it ends. Unless I respond to the gospel, I will not experience salvation. You heard that Mark and I tonight are going to Bulgaria and Germany. 
when we go down to the airport later on, we can't stand there at the window and uh, look at the airplanes and say, yeah, boy, those things can really fly, can't they? Oh, yeah, they can fly. They go fast. Look at them land. Look at them take off. We go nowhere. It's not until we climb up on the plane, sit down, strap ourselves in, and take off that we've gone that next step. Up until then, it's all in, in the intellectual agreement. This week, I actually celebrated a little bit of an anniversary. Uh, it was 10 years ago this week when I had a heart attack while I was jogging. Now, from the very next morning, uh, I began taking medicine every morning and every night. Uh, I am that guy. I'm the one. I'm I'm the one. Why they have the pills that say you know morning and evening and so on. I can talk with any of you about this, okay? But you know what? As I was packing uh, yesterday, and we'll be later today too. As I was packing, and I I had that medication. You know, I can't say, yeah, you know, that's good stuff. That, that helps with cholesterol. That helps with this or that. I can't, you know, it's, it's good to affirm that. But unless I take the next step and take it, it's not going to have any impact on me at all. And so it's, it's more than just faith that that, that product, that thing is real. It's more than just faith that Jesus is real. We've got to partake of him. Trust in him alone. Not only believe that he could theoretically someday save someone, but it's about him being my savior, my only hope in life and death and eternity. In your worship guides, you will see after the outline some, some phrases, some suggestions, some content for a prayer. I didn't want to just put a prayer in there because there is no magical prayer for people who believe to pray. But those are the kinds of things that, that will take us from just believing somewhere in our head to trusting in our heart. I would encourage you, if God has prompted you, don't do this for me or your mother or your children or anyone else, but if God has prompted you to say, that is what I believe, now I need to trust, I would encourage you on your own, to pray with similar content to that. That's the gospel. That is our hope in life and death and resurrection. Let's pray together. Lord, would you take 
this information and enable people to go beyond just saying, okay, so it happened, to saying, Jesus is my Savior, my Lord. Will you enable us to do that? Will you? For those who have been trusting in you, will you reinforce it? For those that need to recommit, will you help us to know we, if, we, if we say we believe and trust, we can't sit on the, a resurrection fence because it does matter. And so, Lord, we, we commit it to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.